welcome to the Camden Fringe Pod, a podcast all about the Camden Fringe. Keep listening for a glimpse behind the curtains and to find out how you can get involved in, you guessed it, the Camden Fringe. Hello, welcome to the Camden Fringe Pod. I'm Michelle. I'm Zena. And we have an interview coming up with Matt Green, who is a very nice man, very nice man, a very seasoned Camden Fringer. He is a comedian who started off in the Cambridge Footlights um, and did sketch comedy. And then he's moved on to doing stand up. And then in the last couple of years, he's really made a name for himself, making online videos, sharing stuff on Twitter, doing terribly well. So we've asked him all about that. Hello, Matt. Hello, nice to see you. Thanks for joining us on the Camden Fringe Pod. I did a little calculation this morning, and this year will be your sixth show at the Camden Fringe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think I did my first one only fifteen um, because I had done a bunch of shows at the Edinburgh Fringe, and my last sort of big show there was twenty thirteen, and then I had a, a year off um, for various reasons, and then. I thought I kind of want to do a show, but it felt like Edinburgh. I mean, it's a, it's a conversation everyone's having at the moment, but Edinburgh was getting more and more big and more and more expensive. And the show I had done in 2013, I thought had been a good show, but it hadn't. I hadn't felt like it had particularly got the attention. I think I'd done five Edinburgh shows in six years. So I'd done four in a row. I took a year off for the Olympics in 2012 because I was competing, obviously. Um, <laughs> and, and I was glad I did because I felt like I wanted to be in London for the Olympics. You know, it's only going to happen yeah. once in my lifetime. But yeah, so then I went back for the 2013 Fringe and it was fine, but it didn't. I didn't sort of have an amazing time. And I felt like I wanted to keep doing shows, but felt like Edinburgh was such a big commitment every year that it was so expensive and so much planning, so much time involved and just so much time out of your life, you know, to do a full month every year is, is quite a lot. And that's one of the things I, I've always loved about the Camden Fringe is that although it does take place over a month, most people do a shorter run. Uh, and it allows you to be kind of focused about it and go, right, I'm going to really focus for this week or so. But then I don't have to spend the whole of my summer worrying about this thing. I've always tended to do the early part of the fringe in Camden. And it's just quite a nice feeling kind of doing the first week or the second week or something and then going off and having a holiday or just having some gigs or whatever it is. And then seeing other people in Edinburgh still grinding through <laughs> the last couple of weeks and feeling like, oh, you know, they've still got a long way to go. Yeah, that last week of Edinburgh, you start seeing people's tweets getting very bleak. It's just such a long time. Yeah, I think it's just got a lot harder as well. Because I've been doing comedy like 20 years nearly now. And the first few years I did Edinburgh, I'd love to see some statistics or some sort of quantitative data on this. Because I have a very strong feeling that it used to kind of build to the end, Edinburgh. It used to feel like the first week was a bit quiet, but you'd get some people in from preview you know sort of cheaper tickets locals would come in and then you'd sort of build as the weeks went on and then the final week was often the best week you know you'd sort of get your best audiences even if you weren't being nominated for awards or something even if your reviews hadn't been great you'd still build to that final weekend the trickle down thing was a real thing I think 20 years ago you I remember seeing the trickle down effect in action where the big shows would sell out and then the shows that had been quieter the rest of the month suddenly were selling out because people would come and just say what can we see and we'd say well there's only tickets for this so there you go that's what you're going to see yeah exactly I think there's a a number of things have happened and I guess one of them is the proliferation of extra shows that that used to be quite rare I think 
uh, in my memory that, you know, people putting on extra shows used to be a fairly rare event and only really for the very, very top people. Mm -hmm. uh, or if somebody had been nominated for the big awards and was selling out every single show from the beginning, they might put a few extra shows on. Whereas it feels like now that's almost become part of the business model that even people who are just doing okay, they still put extra shows on. And it means that you end up with the opposite of the trickle down effect of people turning up and going, oh, I can go and see all these extra shows for people who are doing well. So why would I bother going and see other people? So yeah, it, it, it has felt to me like that, that final week in Edinburgh has become much harder work now. And you often end up with a sort of slight feeling of a damp squib at the end rather than a crescendo. It just sort of goes, Meh. but I think it was 2013 where I had my biggest version of that. There was sort of nadir of that where the very last show I did of the fringe in 2013 was on the last Sunday. And I think I had this, I think I had my smallest audience for the whole run on that last show. And it was a real sort of feeling of like, Oh, okay. So I've spent a whole month yeah. up here and I've ended up with less people at the end than I did at the beginning. And that was quite dispiriting really. And so, yeah, that was another reason why I thought, yeah, I want to try something different. Well, you've slightly spoiled one of my questions, which was how have you become an overnight success? Cause you've kind of given away the fact that you haven't been an overnight success over lockdown. Was it then when you started creating your videos and your, your viral online content? Yeah, very much. As I say, I've been doing comedy in various ways and, and acting and stuff and some writing for about 20 years. I still have the programme for Sensible Haircut. Yes, that was my third year at university. So I did the first two years, I did tour shows when I was in them. Uh, and then the third year, yeah, I directed it. So that was, yeah, that was 2000, goodness me, <laughs> a long time ago. So, I mean, I kind of, I mean, I, I guess I've been doing comedy for, for nearly 25 years on that basis, but I've been doing stand-up for about 20 years. And it kind of, yeah, it, it was sort of going along and I was doing circuit and I was doing shows in Edinburgh and stuff. But then, yeah, when lockdown came along, I kind of, like everybody else in this, the comedy world, suddenly had nothing to do in terms of live work. That all disappeared overnight. I think I had a few weeks of thinking as I'm sure lots of us did, a sort of sort of existential crisis almost of like, well, what what now? Do I retrain and do something else? Do I try and, you know, write a book or do I, try, you know, do I do something completely different, which has got nothing to do with live comedy in any way? But actually, weirdly enough, ironically, it was Edinburgh Fringe that got me into these videos because I saw that the Edinburgh Fringe was cancelled and that was like obviously a huge that was, in some ways, I think for the, for everyone in the entertainment world, that was the moment we all believe, you know, realised that COVID was a big deal. Mm. Yeah, because you never thought that would ever happen, ever. No, because I remember, I remember swine flu year, whenever that was, was that 2009 or something? Yeah, 2010, yeah, I was pregnant and got it. It was, it was, and that was a big, I remember before that thinking, oh gosh, you know, is that going to mean people aren't going to be able to do shows? And there was quite a lot of disruption. I remember lots of shows did get cancelled for a week or two as people had flu and had to isolate and all this kind of stuff but obviously not the whole event it was just a few people on a few shows and the audience figures were kind of about the same I think as they ever were so I think for, for a lot of us I think COVID felt like that initially of like oh well it will just be a thing that we just have to sort of cope with um, but then obviously when it, everything got cancelled there was this sudden moment of like oh god right okay well this is it you know this is a big deal and it sort of inspired me to write a because I sort of had this idea of like what would a what would Edinburgh shows have been like this year if it weren't cancelled? How would the first two minutes have been? Because every, in every stand-up show, there's always those first two or three minutes, which is sort of a bit topical about what's happening in the world this year. And there's always a kind of, you know, everyone's talking about Brexit one year or, or Trump or whatever. And so I thought, well, obviously everyone would be talking about COVID. So I sort of wrote two minutes of stand-up material, but sort of deliberately quite silly, obvious stand-up material that I think would probably by then would have been really hackneyed. And I recorded it in my kitchen just with my phone camera and a microphone. And then it kind of went a little bit viral, like not massively so, but it got a few 
tens of thousands of hits on Twitter and stuff, and people seem to like it. And it got shared a lot. And it made me realize that there is a way of making stuff at home, which you can put out there. And obviously loads of people have been doing that for years, but I had never worked out how to do it myself. Yeah, I did that. And then I made another video soon after that about what would be COVID Edinburgh Fringe shows. So like sort of lots of silly puns on COVID and stuff. And then I just started making other kinds of sketches. And then after about a year of doing various bits and pieces, I, I sort of hit on the the topical sort of more satirical stuff was really hitting and people were really enjoying that and also i was enjoying making it and that felt like stuff that was mostly that was most close to my heart it was material that i wanted to make and so that became my focus and since then i've been mostly making satirical topical political sketches and that's really from a quite a slow start it's it's really built up now and i've got you know loads of followers and people who seem to really enjoy my stuff and that's been very gratifying yeah i counted up this morning counted everyone individually you have eighty-four thousand followers on twitter yeah yeah it's lovely and twenty-three thousand on youtube which is incredible and and particularly from a standing start i had i think i had 60 subscribers on youtube before covid and i had about four thousand or something on twitter so it has been a big change and it's been yeah it's been lovely and and really nice to be able to think okay well how can i use that and get those people hopefully to come and see me live this is what this year's show is about really is about okay how do i transfer that audience that likes me online into a live audience and what do i do that hopefully they will enjoy but also show them that i'm not just a online person i also do stand up um, and more recently, I've been sharing stand-up clips as well, a bit more frequently, just as a, again, a reminder of like, this is also what I do. I also have been doing this for years. So hopefully, if you like this, then you'll also like that. And the two together um, will will be fun. Do you feel like your stand-up has changed since you've been doing the political stuff online? Did you see yourself as a political comedian before? Um, not really. I think I always had that as, a, as an ambition, I guess. And... I always enjoyed political comedy and political comedians. I think I had always found it quite difficult to do a lot of political comedy live because a lot of the gigs that I play are central London, fairly mixed audiences in terms of quite a lot of tourists, Mm -hmm. quite a lot of people who are just there for a night out. I also do a lot of comparing where it's quite hard to have a sort of really clear political perspective whilst you're comparing because... Your job is to sort of be on the side of the audience and be a bridge between the audience and the acts. And so if if you come on with a very clear idea of this is what I believe and everyone else who doesn't believe this is somehow wrong, that can be quite distancing as a compare. So, yeah, I I had always tried to feed political stuff into my stand-up a bit. But also, obviously, there's a problem of it's fast-moving. And you can write something today which tomorrow feels dated but also the audiences aren't necessarily as informed as you are, you know, Mm. (laughs) that I read a lot of politics and I listen to lots of podcasts and I read a lot and I look at a lot of political Twitter and all those sorts of things to do my research. And there's no reason why anyone else should do that. And so if I come on and talk about Liz Truss doing a speech in America today and saying that the reason that taxes are high is because of the woke economy, which is one of the most insane things I've read in the news recently. I think that's really funny and I might make a sketch about it and put that out online, for example, or I might mention that in a sketch or something. If I did that on stage, probably only 10%, 20% of people, if that, would know what I'm talking about and the rest of them wouldn't. And so you've got to be able to hit a broad audience when you're doing stand-up in a club environment. So I suppose 
the answer is I had tried to, but it wasn't really my main focus. Whereas now I feel like, yeah, I'm able to put a bit more into it. Although obviously the gigs I'm playing are still the same sorts of gig. That hasn't changed overnight. I have got a bit more confident when I'm doing sets mm -hmm. to come on and say, right, this is what I think. This is what I'm interested in and talk about that. So my sets have definitely become a bit more political and a bit more topical. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then the hope is that this show that I'm doing in Camden as a work in progress, and then I'll be touring it properly beginning of next year, February 24, I, th I think. That should be being announced hopefully in the next few weeks. That will be a good mix of political stuff and more personal, observational stuff. And hopefully it will be a fun combination, which people who like my stuff online will enjoy and also people who've never seen my stuff online will also be able to get something from it. I think that's really interesting so that with the one hour show format you can put what you want into it without worrying about those things like being a compare you can just make it your own thing. It seems like you look at it in quite a forensic way to make sure you're pleasing lots of different people. I think it's just professionalism you know you just have to I've been doing stand-up a long time now and I've seen people who have tried to do what the audience doesn't want to hear. And sometimes that can work in the long run. You know, those people can carve out their own audience over time, but it's a tough road to go down if you're not someone who's got very thick skin. I'm just more of a people pleaser <laughs> when I'm on stage. I want the audience to have a nice time. I don't want to go on stage and not entertain people. That's my job. But obviously there can be a bit of a clash there between what you want to talk about and what the audience wants to hear. And it's finding that balance is always the, the hard bit. And I think you're absolutely right. When you're doing a hour long show or even when my tour show will be even longer, the right and the expectation that you're going to do what you want to do. And the audience have paid to see you do what you want to do. If they don't like it, that's a shame. And I don't want anyone not to enjoy my shows, but I will be doing what I want to do in those shows rather than trying to sort of please an audience that isn't interested in politics. I've already sold some tickets in advance for all the shows I've put on sale. And the only way I've promoted them is through my social media so far. It's it's something I've never experienced. And I'm really excited about the idea of because that's the dream as a performer is to have an audience who, when you walk on stage, they expect it to be good and want it to be good and, and, and are excited to see you. Whereas obviously every gig I do on a stand up circuit, you have to prove yourself every time you walk on as a as a blank slate and they don't know who you are and you have to do that and that's fine and I've done that for years but it'd be quite nice to experience the, the other side of it. So as an old hand at the Camden Fringe are mm -hmm. there any pointers that you can give future performers? I always tell people that the Camden Fringe is worth doing I think that it's really friendly and be careful about choosing which venues you apply to because different venues definitely suit different shows and if you're going to be doing a stand-up show or a work in progress comedy show I would always advise people to apply to the venues that are used to doing that sort of show. So the Camden Comedy Club or the Aces and Eights, which is where I'm doing, uh, and there are others as well. But if you're going to do a more of a sort of theatrical show, then obviously there are places like the Etc. or Hen and Chickens or other theatre spaces. But don't assume that an audience who are used to seeing theatre shows will definitely come to a comedy show and vice versa. I think it's worth having that in mind. I think I would say that it's it's quite different to Edinburgh in that flyering is not really something that is very effective in my experience because even in Camden which is quite a place where lots of tourists and people just go out to see stuff they're not really expecting to necessarily pick up a flyer and go and see a show that night so if you flyer in Camden it, it's quite a tough experience like you have to really 
be out there for a long time and you've got to be somebody who's really good at that to, to make much of an impact necessarily. Um, so I think you've got to do a lot of your promotions online these days and that, you know, there are lots of ways of doing that. People can do social media, they can do Google ads, Facebook ads, all sorts of different sort of uh, online promotion tools are really worth it. And I would also recommend working with other companies. So finding out who else is on in the same venue as you, cross-promoting, asking people to mention your show afterwards, that sort of thing. If you have flyers, flyering the shows is much more effective than flyering just randomly in the street. And also the press, in my experience, has been quite friendly and there are lots of small online review sites who quite often will come and see you and review you if you ask them to nicely and if you send them press releases in good time. I've not had any particularly negative experiences with that, whereas in Edinburgh, I think ironically, probably some of the people who work on Camden Theatre Press or Comedy Press are just way more experienced than the people who are in Edinburgh, because in Edinburgh you just get loads of students who do a lot of the reviewing. So it's a bit of a lottery whether you're going to get someone who knows what they're talking about. Whereas actually in Camden, I found that the reviewers have been reasonably knowledgeable and, and quite supportive whilst being critical where they've felt necessary. So yeah, I've always found it to be a um, supportive fringe and the audiences tend to be supportive and don't panic is the other thing if you're not selling tickets in advance, because I've been very lucky this year that I think because of the online stuff, I have sold a few in advance, but I look back at my records from previous years and I've often sold almost none at all until the week before and then quite often sold pretty well and in some cases sold out shows so it can be a, a festival where people book quite late and will turn up on the door and don't panic about that it's not like Edinburgh where you're competing with hundreds and hundreds of other shows there are probably a couple of dozen other shows that you're competing with any day if that so don't panic all good advice and can we use your expertise in making videos and ask do you have lots of special equipment now or is it all done at home still do you go to studios how do you make your your viral videos yeah it's still very simple really i have invested in a bit of equipment i use my phone for my camera which is just an iphone i i think that's probably as good as any camera you can get if you're doing fairly close-up things so i have a plug-in microphone that i use which is a better mic because i think the camera is good but i think the mic on the iphones isn't brilliant so i have a clip mic that i clip on which plugs into my laptop and um, so I record sound separately, which I think is really worth doing. If you're doing a, a video where it's you talking to camera, I think it's really worth getting a clip mic because then you get much cleaner sound. And that's really important for online videos. I have a green screen that I put at home, but I literally just have a curtain rail and two hooks that I've put on my um, wall. So I put the curtain rail across the hooks and then put the green screen on it, which is just a cloth that I bought from Amazon for about a tenner or something. And that's been really useful. And I also have a tripod, like a ring light tripod thing for the camera and a couple of lights as well, a couple of soft boxes. And that's that's kind of it, really. I, and that's enough to film fairly decent stuff against a green screen. The crucial thing is the editing. I use Premiere from Adobe, which is quite expensive because it's a subscription model. But as someone who works in creative industries, you can put that through as a tax expense. So, you know, I, I think that kind of works out okay. But actually, there are other editing softwares that are cheaper or free that you can use. iMovie is pretty good. I do think it just takes a bit of time to learn. Yeah, the, the first videos I did took a long time to get right. And now I've kind of got into routine with them. I sort of understand how it works. And I don't try and do anything too complicated. I think that's the other thing. Like I, 
I use my green screen and I, if I'm doing an interview sketch, I shoot myself in two different setups and then edit them together. And I don't worry too much about moving the camera or anything like that. Cause the, the more complexity you put into a video, the harder it is to film and edit and everything. If you've got someone who, who can help you with your editing, great, <laughs> do that. Uh, I would sometimes love to be able to just hand off my editing to somebody, but I don't, I do it all myself. And actually it's taken me a while to work it out, but now I'm, you know, I can make a video fairly quickly if I've, if I've got the script. That's the key thing, actually. That's the thing I would say to anybody about any kind of creativity or any kind of production is the more preparation you do, the better. And when you're making videos, number one is the script. So if you get the script right, if you think about it and script it and then draft it again, draft it again and check it and read it out to yourself, time it, make sure it fits within whatever limit you're setting yourself. So Twitter videos, for example, they have a limit of two minutes 20. YouTube obviously is not the, doesn't have the same problem, but then things like TikTok and Instagram, they all have different rules and different criteria for their videos. So just check on that. Then when you make it, if you script it properly, when you make it and edit it, it'll be much easier. If you script it loosely and you're not quite sure what you're doing, you'll get halfway through the edit and realize that you've missed something or you should have added something. And then it's much more annoying to then have to go back and refilm things. So the script is really important. That's the most important bit. And if you get the script right, everything else flows from that. That's brilliant. I think that's really useful for people who are maybe going to make a little trailer for their show, which I think is really worth doing. If you're doing a live show, it's worth having something you can show people to give them a taste of what you're going to do. Definitely. I think if you can, I, I think it's really helpful. I think these days people do just search for people online and they look at your stuff and they look at your social media and they look at your videos. And if you haven't got anything out there that feels suspicious to people now, even only a few years ago, it would have been totally fine to do that. Whereas now you kind of need to have something even if it's just a little trailer or some sort of clip or something, it's just useful to have something out there so people can see it. They can see that you're not just pretending <laughs> that you know what you're doing. Um, and then, yeah, just do it as, as well as you can. And when you put in a, a video together or if you're just sending a tweet out, do you have like a social media plan? Do you I'm going to make this and then I'm going to put it on this, this and this on this day, this time? And do you think about it to that extent? I probably should. I don't really. There are definitely people who are way better at social media than I am. There's people who are really clever about how they schedule things. And, and you can look at analytics. And I do look at analytics sometimes. And I just always just go, I don't really know what this means. You know? <laughs> I think because my stuff is quite topical often, I just try and get things out as quickly as I can because I want to be able to hit the news cycle. And if I leave it a day, then it might not be in date after that or it might not be quite as relevant, which I guess is slightly my excuse for not being too bothered about the um, scheduling. It is definitely worth thinking about that, though. It is definitely worth thinking about when are people looking at Twitter. If you put something out at three o'clock in the afternoon, you might not get the same response as if you put it out at nine in the morning or nine at night. And the other thing about things like Twitter is, particularly Twitter, actually, you can't overshare. You put a tweet out, it'll get seen by a, a few people, and then it'll be gone into the stream and you have to share it again and then share it again and share it later or share it in the morning or share it the following day or don't just assume that people are going to pick things up particularly early on when you haven't put very much out yet it takes time for the algorithms to kind of see that you're putting things out same on youtube the first video you put out on youtube won't get loads of views the second might get a few more and the third might get a few more and it builds same with all the other ones sometimes you might get lucky and something will click and go viral and that's brilliant. But that doesn't mean the next one will. I think there's a real sort of quantity aspect to it as well. Better to put out five videos that are fine, that you know, that are good and you're happy with, 
but aren't absolutely pin perfect and put out one that's absolutely perfect but spent so much time on that you've only got one out you know i think it's better to spread it a little bit you know some people might disagree with that you think it's okay to put the same thing out a few times Oh, definitely. Particularly on Twitter, like to keep resharing it and, and asking people to share it and sharing it in different ways and quote tweeting it and all that sort of thing. Slightly different maybe on YouTube where you put your video out. Probably wouldn't make sense to just re-upload the same thing, but you can certainly re-upload similar things and new versions and, and all that sort of stuff. And then, yeah, don't feel like you're over-sharing or over-promoting because, yeah, one or two people might get sort of like annoyed about it, but the reality is that most people just don't see your stuff very often. Like social media is just this constant torrent of things. And it happens to me all the time that I, I follow people on Twitter who I think are really funny. And then I see one of their videos and it's already got 200,000 views or something. And I think, gosh, when did they put that out? They put it out two days ago and I just didn't see it. And then I, I look at it and I think, oh, that's great. And I'll retweet it or whatever. And that always reminds me, yeah, you might think, oh, I've, I've already shared this three times. and I don't want to overdo it, but I don't think you can overshare. Obviously, don't share it every five minutes, <laughs> but um, every couple of hours or every day or something is absolutely fine. Yeah. And if this is just a little tip from me, if the festival you're performing at writes a nice tweet about your show with a link to your ticket page and posts it online, why not share it instead of just liking it? Why not retweet it? It's so bizarre that people have this weird attitude to promotion i mean that is a whole different podcast there's a sort of psychological podcast about why comedians desperately want people to come and see their shows also desperately don't want anyone to come <laughs> there's a sort of weird mix of like look at me don't look at me look at me don't look at me and i think that comes out really strongly when you're doing edinburgh fringe or camden fringe or any of these sorts of festivals where there has to be some promotion involved and it's so tempting as a comedian just to sort of hide away and be like well i'm sure some nice people will come and see it and that's all i need to worry about i always think no these days just promote it people want to see it they don't want to see it, that's fine, but give them the opportunity at least. The number of times I'll share something for the 20th time and then someone will go, oh, I didn't know about that. And you think, yeah, that's that's why you do it. That's why you keep sharing it, you know. Do you think that's a British thing of everyone being a bit self-deprecating in this country or do you think it's a comedian thing? I think it's a bit of both. I don't think American comedians are backward in coming forward. I think they're pretty happy to promote themselves. They all have merch and there are some British acts who have got a lot better at that and you see them doing really well on social media and podcasting and things. But I think there is still this feeling of like, I don't want to be a fuss. I don't want to make a fuss. I don't want to promote myself too much because it looks arrogant or something. And I think, well, no, if you think what you're doing is worth watching, then why not try and get some people to watch it? Very, very sensible. Thank you very much for talking yeah. to us. Yeah, no thanks worries. so much, Matt. It was really, really useful stuff. Good luck with the new show. Tell us where and when we can see it. It is on from the 8th to the 11th of August at 8 o'clock. This is Nate, and I'm doing also the Saturday, the 12th, but that is moving over to the Camden Comedy Club at 6.30. And there aren't many tickets left for that Saturday show. So if you'd like to come and see on the Saturday, book now. And is your Brighton Fringe run sold out now? The first show is sold out, and I've added an extra show on the same day. So that is very much not sold out. So yes, you can come and see Brighton Fringe on the 29th of May. Fantastic. Well, he's very nice, isn't he? Very intelligent, which you would expect from someone who was at Cambridge. Yeah, he's smart and very articulate and he has lots of um, interesting things to say. I think one of my favourite things was, don't panic if you haven't sold any tickets in advance. Don't panic. It's a really big one for us that actually, isn't it? Because quite often during the festival, we might have people emailing us the day before their show saying, Zena, Michelle, we're going to just cancel our show because we can't do it because we've not sold any tickets yet. And, you know, it's, it's all a disaster. 
And then we have to sort of talk them from the ledge, don't we? And then people buy tickets on the day. It's when people do it two weeks before and say no one's bought any tickets. I think there's definitely been a trend post-pandemic that people don't buy tickets a long way in advance because we all got very used to things being cancelled, plans being destroyed, everything changing last minute. I mean, there's always, with Fringe Theatre anyway, there's always a bit of a last minute rush. But particularly post-pandemic, I think people have not been keen to plan things too far in advance. But that doesn't mean you don't put the work in in advance because you're planting seeds. Of course, of course. Fabulous. So our next episode will be all about marketing. We've got a marketing expert come to talk to us. (gasps) What's his name? Andrew Collier. (gasps) He knows all about In the Night Garden, the Ninky Nonk, and indeed the Pinky Ponk. Possibly a Tinky Tonk? Macapaca. Oopsie-daisy. I still know all of the Macapaca song, but I won't do it now. Brilliant. Well, thank you for listening. Um, do follow us on social media. Do subscribe, listen to other episodes because we've covered all sorts of topics and um, they're hopefully very helpful to anyone putting on a Fringe show. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.